RadioInfluence.com Christian Watson makes a passionate plea to color us united instead of divided on this episode of United Patriots Uprising with Gary Benford. I'm your host, Gary Benford. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is available at RadioInfluence.com or wherever you get your favorite podcast. Hope you'll subscribe to it, leave a rating and a review, and be sure to tell your friends about the show. Have you ever thought about what a race-blind America would look like? How it would function? It most certainly would be the death knell to anti-American factions seeking to divide us along race, gender, and class lines. Is it doable? My guest says yes. So let's get into it. He's a political commentator, podcast host who delivers daily cultural and political analysis, and he's the national spokesperson for Color Us United. He treasures speaking on college campuses, unpacking the delusion of diversity politics, and his message of individual liberty and the philosophy of free thought are resonating with audiences throughout the nation. We've seen him on visual and digital media outlets, including Newsmax, the USA Today, Washington Examiner and Washington Times, as well as a frequent guest on Fox and Friends. I welcome to the show the host of the Pensive Politics podcast and the Christian Watson channel on YouTube, Mr. Christian Watson. How are you, Christian? Good. How are you? Fine. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. My first question to you is you state your mission is to bring intelligent philosophy discourse to the pressing cultural and political issues of the contemporary age. Will you please explain and unpack what that actually means? Of course. So I think that the way we talk about politics in our current climate is not very intelligent. It's not very substantive, nor is it very fruitful. Our founders, you know, all those years ago in the ancient time of 1777, the 1700s, they actually had a keen understanding of philosophy. They had a key understanding of first principles. They had a key understanding of classical history. And not these are not just niceties to put on your resume and make you seem smart. These actually influenced their ability to establish the American Republic in its current form uh, and to also give birth to the documents that define the character of our great nation. But even beyond the founders, even the less educated people in the colonial era, at least almost every house had one book in it, at least almost every household had some knowledge of philosophy or history. And this, this knowledge formulated and justified the revolutionary sentiments that the founders had and gave it mass appeal. This is why Thomas Paine's Common Sense was actually, even though today it'd be considered some obscure academic text, was back then made for the common man, which shows how far our, our idea of intelligence has fallen in our current era. We need to get back to this. If there can be a generation of people who established this great nation many years ago who had less resources, had less had less ability to communicate and all that kind of stuff, and they can be more educated than we are right now, there's a serious problem. I genuinely believe that the American Republic is due for a second renaissance. A renaissance, they call it a revolution of the mind. And that revolution can only happen when Americans turn back to the ideas that made, our, must, made us great and then understand why those ideas made us great by studying the people who first formulated those ideas. 
I want people to have a grounding, a basis for their beliefs and their moral understanding. Much of the chaos we see today is actually a result of a of a lack of foundation for moral understanding. Let me give you one example. The whole craze about transgender children. Well, first of all, if we understood categories which came from Aristotle's logic, we would understand that a transgender child is not a valid category because children lack moral agency. But to, but to call a child transgender is to say that a child who lacks moral agency can then therefore shift the nature of their identity, which is impossible. If you lack moral agency, you cannot make such long-standing decisions. A basic understanding of the categories, which is not even the most complicated thing to understand, would easily disqualify that craze. But we're not led by categories and sound logic. We are instead led by the passions. We are instead led by ideas that come under the veil of benevolence that we believe if we do not accept we are therefore malevolent and intolerant and evil. We are not led by higher ideas. A culture led by higher ideas would not have accepted that craze in the first place. Now, this is not just about ideas that I agree with. There are plenty of also other ideas that I don't agree with that wouldn't have been shunned as well if we had a revolution of the mind. Let's be specific here, okay? Let's go back to the 1950s, the McCarthyite hearings. Harry Truman once said, I believe, that he, he, he attacked, which was very rare for his age, he attacked the witch hunts for communists because he said that America is a pluralistic society, an open society, and we should be able to tolerate different opinions. Now, personally, I believe that communism is a fundamental evil. I don't support it. I, it's anathema to me. I have read many of their philosophers. I have read Marx. I have read their more obscure philosophers like Proudhon. These are foul ideas that don't only miss human nature, but they miss the fundamental principles of human organization, and they believe those principles can be appropriated for other means, but they can't. But having said that, in a, in a pluralistic society where free thought is valued, you should be able to be wrong. You should be able to have the wrong ideas. And, but, but back then, those wrong ideas were deemed anti-American, and that was the basis to suppress them. But the suppression of those ideas is actually anti-American. Even if those ideas are anti-American, there's still room for them in a social context. Now, in a political context, that's different. I don't want communists in my leadership. I don't want people who hate America in my government. But in the social context, where ideas can flow forth and people can debate amongst each other, there's more than enough room for ideas that are crazy or ideas that are just fundamentally wrong and riddled with errors. But America in the 50s didn't believe that, and we tore down the livelihoods of newspaper editors, of actors, of journalists, some of whom weren't even communists, because that was politically advantageous to the people at the time, to the era of the time. So HUAC, the House Un-American Affairs Committee, uh, which Richard Nixon chaired, Joe McCarthy, all that entire apparatus was also a result of America not having a revolution of the mind. So I take this very seriously. I take it very seriously because I know what this can bring forth for our nation. I know what this can do for the advancement of the, this generation, my generation, Gen Z, and the next generation. And I have great optimism that when more people realize that they have been thinking about politics and society the wrong way, they'll wake up and they will think about it the right way. Well, Kristen, you unpacked a lot there. 
Uh, I'm a child of the 50s. I, I was actually born in 1950. And uh, oh, okay. this show, the premise of my show is to expose communism, Marxism, cultural Marxism, because it's a resident evil. And as a political evil, it is going to bring America down because the only way you can have a socialist, communist country is to get that constitution out of there. Because the constitution gives us First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to bear arms, and in, as you know, Marx, the first thing he had to do was new to the church. Second thing, take away the guns. So when you find out, like Venezuela and Cuba, that your country's been taken over in a form you don't want of a totalitarian government, now you can't fight back. They have military-style weapons. You have peace shooters. The thing I'm going to say about what you said about communism and about what happened with McCarthy, because uh, I've had a lot of guests on that, some that lived through it, I've had actors and actresses on that understand what went on. The problem we have now, I would say, and I'd like you to comment on this, the constitution was set up for moral people. It was set up for a people of a morality, a people that believed in a God, and a people that had a moral compass. Once that's gone, all bets are off. And see, they've gotten rid of the Bible, they've gotten rid of God, they've gotten rid of Jesus, they've taken, basically taken the what the founding fathers, the Judeo-Christian values as founding fathers created the Constitution on, have gotten rid of that, replaced creation with evolution, so now communism can walk right in because it doesn't see evil because I say people have lost a moral compass and that's why they're putting up with all the stuff we're putting up with and about to lose this nation. Yeah, I, I agree with you entirely. So, and it's interesting because that John Adams quote that the constitution was, was made for a moral religious people. Um, it's interesting because a lot of the founders themselves, a lot of them were right. Christians, absolutely, or they were some, some kind of uh, deists. Deist, but some right. of them were secular, secular, secular mm -hmm. humanists. And they had some major fights. They, they yeah, had absolutely. some battles. They did. They did. Um, that some of them were secular humanists. And some of them, like Jefferson, and he just like took parts of the Bible that he liked and put them in his Bible and let the other parts out, which right. any Christian would tell you that's bad. Right. But they understood that there was a foundation in faith. America, I argue, was built on faith. Yes. There's been a lot of other things too, but it was built on faith. Because when you go up against one of the largest empires in the history of the world at that time, and you are just a ragtag band of revolutionaries who have less than superior weapons, who don't have as many arms or as many as much strategy as those that empire had had, and you're able to overthrow that empire, of course with the help of the French, I'll, I won't I won't I will give credit where credit's due, the French helped, but still, you're able to overthrow that empire. That's amazing. That's almost unheard of. And I think that the American Revolution has been one of the most successful revolutions in the history of revolutions in the history of our of our world. Look what happened in France. France didn't do, have the same success we did. They went from having a natural law framework, which says that we are all created equal and we all have these inalienable rights, and there are things about reality that are unmoving objective that cannot be, uh, cannot be besmirched by government or by political law. And then they immediately decayed into something like Ross Pierre's terror. They immediately decayed into hedonism. They immediately decayed into these ideas, which went away from that foundational framework and went towards something more vile, which eventually led to who? Not to freedom, but to Napoleon, who was one of the most brutal emperors in the history of France. So 
you, revolutions, when done on the right ideas, that stay connected to those ideas, the subterranean moral ideas, are actually quite fruitful. The revolutions that start off good, but end up going away from those ideas, will almost always tend to chaos. So I, I think that this is a very interesting point to make in history. But here's where I think this quote is oftentimes taken out of context. I'm personally a Christian. I believe that Christianity is true faith. I'm a follower of Jesus. But I yeah. don't think that someone who is a non-Christian is incapable of partaking in the vision of our founders, so long as their moral code is yeah. is coordinated to the correct set of principles. Absolutely. Because our founders, were, some of them were secular humanists. Mm-hmm. A secular humanist is not a Christian, and they, they, they reject the idea of God. But they believe in natural law. Now, I ultimately believe that natural law comes from God. You, to, to get to the justification of natural law, you have to go to God. But to acknowledge the truth of natural law, you can theoretically be an atheist. Because you can say, as opposed to it coming from God, it comes from nature. Which is what secular humanists really believe in, nature. So even though I would disagree with them on a sort of uh, fundamental level about where's the basis, if we can agree on the principles then we can live in a society. The problem today is that those principles are besmirched by the left. They are not agreed upon. They are seen as totalitarian and oppressive um, and, and, and the tools of marginalization. We, use that, we see that word a lot today, marginalization. They are not seen as fundamental truths. They're seen as ideas cooked up by old white men to oppress people. And so when you have a society where the emphasis is on deconstruction and not building, the emphasis is on tearing down and not preserving, you can't have any longstanding or coherent project. You just can't. Because by the nature of society, it is a – what's a society? It's a mutual exchange amongst a group of people who have mutual ideas. We don't have those mutual ideas, those mutual core values. You don't have a society. So I think that we've decayed from acknowledging universal principles, and we've gone towards the the, the, the domain of a subjective truth, the, the domain of my truth, the domain of my perspective is right because it's my expression. And if you try to stop me from expressing myself by rejecting my perspective, you are erasing my existence. These are the kind of arguments you put forth by the academic left today and by many of the activists today. When we are in the domain of those kind of arguments, there is no fundamental truth to them. There is no objective principles. There is no common basis. There's just conflict. Right. And yep. Marx's entire theory of the world, dialectical materialism, is all about the inevitable terminist conflict between the two classes, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. Yeah. Now we are seeing a form of that today. Right. And and the only reason that they can pull this off. And I'm going to go back to, to uh, two people that I'm sure you well know, obviously Karl Marx and what he did, and Antonio Gramsci, the father of, of, of cultural Marxism. But if you read, it, even, not just uh, W. Cleon Skousen's book, The Naked Communist, back from the late 50s, but the whole key to communism to a takeover of a country is to eradicate God first. Because exactly what you just said, people think their ideas are right, even if they're wrong or they think they have the right to express them or that we don't have the right to tell them they're wrong. Well, the thing is, once you get God out of a society, 
The only reason that I know abortion is wrong is because God says you don't kill. You don't kill. The only reason that I would be against like if you want to if somebody wants to love or be with whoever they want, that's on them. But God, God's definition of homosexuality, of lesbianism and of same sex marriage. He's the one that says it's wrong, not me. Now, the thing is, once you take him out of the picture and anybody can decide and you have the communists and, and cultural Marxism now, now they're changing the culture. Now they're trying to get rid of all vestiges of what they say on the left. We're right. What you say on the right, it used to be we think you're wrong, but let's debate it. Now they say, no, it's not wrong. To our, it's not for us to debate. You're evil. And what can you do with evil? You can either jail it or kill it. And that's the scary thing to me. This is where it seems that we're heading. We're on the verge of if you actually stand up for God's word in the Bible on so, certain social issues, they're, they're getting close to, you know, saying we can either jail or gulag you. Well, we saw a lot of this happen during the pandemic, especially in California, with Gavin Newsom trying to force the churches to close their doors and during the height of the pandemic in the name of public health. So uh, I, I think that we are seeing a, a certain level of, of oppression of the church because the church is most certainly the fundamental organ of certain sections of society. The, the, the church was actually what helped break down the feudal system of Europe and generate a new idea of, of, of liberty and freedom because the, 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 the church in the proper sense, I'm, by church I mean the body of Christ, I don't mean the institution like the mm -hmm. Catholic Church, Amen. the body of Christ, the, the church acknowledge the fundamental truth of the Christian faith, the fundamental axiom, which is that an individual salvation is theirs and theirs alone. And that requires a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that requires you to use your free will to come closer to him. That Those very simple principles mm -hmm. actually gave birth to a new understanding of man after the feudal system broke down. Because when the feudal system was around and before that, man was defined in terms of class systems. He was defined in terms of categories and groups and mm -hmm. where he was born, what family he was, you know, what bloodline he came from. But the Christian faith had always put an emphasis on the individual and their spiritual value. And that really came into head after the feudal system collapsed. Now, having said that, I, I, I want to continue to make this point. I believe that atheists or Hindus or Muslims or Buddhists can have an equal share in our society mm -hmm. if they recognize some fundamental principles. And where those ideas come from, that'll be a debate we don't agree with, 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 with them. But agreeing on the principles themselves, I can live with you. This is what pluralism kind of requires. Pluralism requires an overarching set of values that everyone follows, and then we can disagree later on the minute details. And this is what America was built upon. Hold on, I got to stop you right there because you're right. That's what we were built. That's changed. Can we get that? See, the values have changed. The values that these radicals want are not the values our parents had. It, it, well, I, I think that there has always been a group in America agitating against these principles. And at some level, they have been more successful or less successful. They started becoming more successful in the 1900s when the progressive era was established, when they were able to utilize the passions of those who felt they were down, downtrodden, that felt that the man was screwing them out of their money. And so they used that to reevaluate and change the nature of government and the people's relationship with government. 
1887, Woodrow Wilson wrote in an essay called uh, On the Study of Administration, where he basically said the Constitution doesn't matter anymore. How you run the government is what actually matters. That's the pressing political question of our age. Those, Those were his exact words. And that single sentence set the tone for over 123 now plus years, maybe even more than that, of progressive tyranny. That single sentence. It was what informed. It's what informed the the establishment of the Federal Reserve System. Mm-hmm. It's what informed the establishment of the of the new the, the New Deal. It's what informed the establishment of the Great Society. It's what informed uh, now informs the modern day Green New Deal. It's what informs all of these tyrannical political projects the left runs. That single sentence. We can now separate the idea of constitutionalism from the idea of running the government because those two two different things. That single sentence is what really set this off. And most folks don't even know about that essay, which is why I'm encouraging people, please read more. The revolution of the mind requires you to read, to seep yourself in this stuff. You don't have to be a professor or an Ivy League degree holder. You don't have to be that. Our founders weren't even that. The self-educated man in the 1770s was actually more educated than the educated man is today. Funnily enough, those people go to Harvard and get their degree think they're so smart, but they only know what the courses have taught them and what the people who teach the courses, the professors, have instilled in those courses, which is why, I mean, and, I, and I'm not someone who tries to brag or anything, but personally, a lot of the knowledge that I have accrued over my lifetime has been self-taught. Uh, and I don't, I, I never learned about Woodrow Wilson in, in university or high school. I never learned about natural law in university or high school. I took philosophy in college and they didn't talk about natural law at all, not once. Talked a lot about Plato and Greece and all that kind of stuff, but natural law, the very the very basis of the American moral, political, and legal system, not a peep, not even a class, not even an optional class. Hold on, Christian. Law. Hold on. Since you went there, because this is an audio, this is on audio. So just so everybody understands, first off, Christian is black. Second off, he's not fifty; he's twenty-three. You just got out of college, graduated. Congratulations from Mercer University in Georgia. Listen to this knowledge, people. Now, my question to you is, how did you come about this? How did you escape the Democratic plantation? I was a Democrat till I was 47 years old, got saved, became a follower of Jesus Christ and realized I I was on the wrong path. And what was college like for you having this type of mindset? Because I don't think that many young black Americans uh, think like you do. Well, um, well, I appreciate the compliments. Um, I came about this over years of self-study and just being exposed to different things. I think my saga began by what I was exposed to as a prepubescent child. I, unlike all the other children of my generation, I actually was glued to network news when I was 11, 12, 13, 14. Most people were watching cartoons or whatever. I was actually glued to Fox, CNN, MSNBC. I watched all of them. I remember being 12 years old and looking forward to go watching Piers Morgan at nighttime, even though I didn't agree with Piers Morgan on almost anything at that time. And I still mm-hmm. don't, actually. Um, but I remember watching his show when he was on CNN. I remember going to watch Rachel Maddow. I remember going to watch, before he got crazy, Don Lemon. I remember going to watch Bill O'Reilly when he was still on the air. And this exposure to all these different ideas really cultivated an interest in me to learn more, read more, study more. So I used the internet as a resource to poke around 
to read about different things. And I didn't have a particular course study list. I basically just read about anything and everything. I eventually came came upon philosophy through that mechanism. And I didn't understand it very well before college, but I knew that I liked the way that it was that that it was a different perspective on the world. And then when I got into college, I supplemented my courses with personal study. And that's really when I began going to academic conferences on my own. I began going to talk. I would be emailing people who had written something I thought was interesting. I began writing myself for a little bit. I wrote quite a, I wrote quite a lot, actually, which is why you see all those things in my my bylines, the Newsweek, the USA Today, all that kind of stuff. Um, and and I also partook in collegiate debate, which exposed me to a bunch of other horrors that would take too long to explain. Um, and, and then through all of that, the accumulation of my experience from when I was young, from when I was in high school, then from when I went into college, I decided that I wanted to be a political commentator, i.e. public intellectual. And so that's the journey I've been on for the past few years now. I hear you. Now, you know, Once again, congratulations. Uh, A little while back, you mentioned Gavin Newsom, and I saw you on Fox and Friends Mm. speaking with Peter Ducey about reparations. Mm. And I I can't believe this is being taken as seriously as it is, especially in Gulag Gavin's Mm. uh, California. What the heck is Mm. going on here? Well, um, I, I think California is the repository for all the bad ideas in the country and their effects. What about my, really, New York? What about my New York? Are we right there with them? Or are we a distant second? Um, well, I, I, I would say New York's in the top five. And I, by the way, you know, New York has a charm into it. I, I That city, what has happened to that city is a shame. Uh, you know, because I, I live in Pennsylvania, so I've been in New York many, 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 many times, including recently for conferences and for work. And even now, I think that the city still has a charm to it, but less so. I mean, I, I was scared several times to be on the subway because there were homeless people just screaming and, you know, being aggressive. While I was just standing on the platform trying to get into the subway. So, yeah, there, there are some serious problems. But, no, I think I would prefer I would live in New York City before I lived in Cal- anywhere in California. Easy. Uh, and that's not saying very much, but I, I, I trust NYC more than I trust Los Angeles or San Francisco, God forbid San Francisco, which is just an absolute nightmare right now. But in California really is just the repository for all these bad ideas. And Gavin Newsom is their ringleader. I have never seen in modern day times a more anti-American politician than Gavin Newsom. I haven't. I can go all the way back to the 1920s and 1913s and the 1900s and pick out a bunch of them for you. Someone who thought that it was morally justifiable to shut down churches and their free exercise of religion, which violates the First Amendment. Someone who decides that it's perfectly fine to um, to capitalize upon some of the worst impulses of the activist left in order to make himself look good. Um, someone who thinks that it's totally fine to strangle the ability of independent contractors like Uber drivers from making a living in the name of preserving a legacy old taxi, a taxi cab industry, which is what Gavin Newsom tried to do. There's absolutely nothing redeeming about this man. And God forbid he manages to capitalize upon Biden's decrepancy and tries to become the Democratic nominee for president. There's a distinct chance he could win unless, of course, and I'm going to say this, I'm going to be a shameless plug here, unless, of course, someone like Vivek Ramaswamy wins. If Vivek Ramaswamy wins, then I think Vivek Ramaswamy will be the next president of the United States. Uh, I personally believe a lot in that man's campaign. I personally believe in the way he talks, the way he formulates his ideas is much like how I do mine. So I really much appreciate that. And he understands the the flame of Americanism 
that burns so bright and that contains so many core principles that initiated our country into existence has been dimmed by these contrary ideas, contrary ideologies. And so I personally believe that he would be able to reignite that flame by backing up the influence of government over the private sphere, by uh, ensuring that our enemies like China cannot claim dominion over us through these subversive tactics and methods, uh, by ensuring that American obligation is made towards our people, not made towards foreign nations across the sea like Ukraine. These are just certain ideas that I think are essential for us to understand and to partake in if we want to survive, revive America. I agree with you on on ideas, but the one thing I will say, and I want to make another comment about Gavin Newsom, the one thing I will say, whoever, as a Republican or conservative, gets in that White House, the first thing they better be able to do is drain that swamp. Otherwise, you're not governing anything because what's being run there and how it's being run, and Donald Trump has exposed this, what's being run and how it's being run They'll run you out of there because you have mm-hmm. you, everything's weaponized. So that's what my fear is of anybody other than Donald Trump finishing this job is that they have no idea what they're getting ready to walk into. But you can comment on that. But the comment I want to make about Newsom, I watched him with Hannity and it scared me because you and I sat there and knew he was lying through his teeth. But he but it's so smooth and he makes it sound so believable. He scared yeah. he, he scared me like Obama did. When I heard Obama's first speech, I called a friend. I never heard his name before. When he uh, when he, and I said, "This guy's dangerous." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Newsom. That's the thing. So we live in a society that values aesthetics more than they value substance. This is unfortunately a core part of human nature. Something looks good, even if it's not good for us, we will most likely partake in it. So politicians use this principle to their own advantage. Newsom has used this principle in spades and will continue to use principle in spades as Biden continues to decline and the doorway to for opportunity opens up more for Newsom to walk in and uh, claim dominion over the Democratic Party. Um, he People should be concerned about him. They should study him immensely. They should understand his positions and they should understand how to counter his positions intellectually. Well, nobody's paying attention. You know, and you said people need to read more. Hey, the way they've got this thing set up with the phones and with the iPhone and the Twitter and with the Mimi, all, the, all this stuff, you notice people, I don't even use that stuff. I talk to people on the phone. I only text, I don't even text. I, I, I'll email if I have to, but I want to develop and keep relationships with people. Not only are people, not only are they talking to each other, they're no longer even reading. They're on this microwave. Twitter, tweet, this stuff, and you try and put a book in front of somebody and it it takes too long to read. I think this is all intentional. It's all part of the plan to dumb us down. What do you think? I think that uh, there's a little bit of engineering there. There's also a little bit of just organic exposure. Um, the digital the digital age, if you look at most studies, actually has culminated in lower attention spans. And I think the internet's been one of the best tools for human advancement and prosperity that we've had in the past 30 years. But it's also had some significant downsides and nothing in life does not have downsides. Right. So I think that it's a little bit of engineering, but it's also a little bit of just organic exposure. But, you know, I'm a creature of new media. I'm a creature of the YouTube, of the Twitter, of all that kind of stuff. And I've seen how people can be influenced towards more intellectual modes of thinking, which is why I'm inspired down in my heart to keep going and to Mm -hmm. try to push people in the right direction, because 
we can start a movement, a revolution of the mind that does take us back to those initial modes of thinking and first principles that established America and allowed her to be a beacon of light for so many years. I hear you. I hear you. And it can be you. And it's just like it's just like gunpowder. It's just like a lot of things. A scalpel in the hand of a surgeon saves a life. A knife in the hand of a, of a mugger can kill a person. Before I ask you about uh, Colorist United, there was a time which I would have thought people in America would have loved a race blind America. But the communists and Marx have been far too uh, effective in dividing us along, you know, the race, gender, class. You know, as Christians, we have father, son, Holy Spirit. The communists and Marxists, they have race, gender, class. How big is the race problem and how do we overcome it? The, the, the first question is going to be easier to answer the second question, so I'll answer that one first. Um, the race problem is not really a problem to average Americans. Um, the levels of racial acceptance in America have, been, have significantly gone up, even from when you were a kid. Most people today don't mind having a black neighbor or a neighbor of a different race. Most people today are in overwhelming support of interracial marriage, which is different from this 60 years ago. Most folks today have moved beyond race as a metric of value of the person's of a person's character. They've moved beyond that, and they have embraced colorblindness at least uh, de facto, if not de jure, if not explicitly. They've done so through their actions. But the moment race becomes this pressing issue that is weaponized by activist classes that have something to gain from dredging up the issue, that is the moment people begin to become confused about the matter. Because when something is being used against you as a weapon, you will not see the substance of that thing. You will see the fact that it's being used as a weapon, and that will inform your entire thought pattern system towards that thing, which then basically making decisions about an illusion as opposed to something of substance. So I say all that to say this. Most people today in America are not racist. But a lot of Americans, especially white Americans, are being tired of being discriminated against in emissions. They're being tired of being told they are evil. They're being tired of being told that they are, um, by virtue of being white, privileged, and have it, be- have it better off than most people, and they're being tired of having guilt for actions they didn't commit and their family didn't commit. So that creates resentment. We have to reorient the cultural conversation to make sure that those ideas do not create resentment by getting away from those ideas. So I, hear you. I don't believe that it's so I don't believe that, that there's really a problem at all. I think that there is a culture war going on that uses race as a proxy and people don't understand it for what it is. They understand it for what they see. What they see is not what it is. Um, and so how do you move beyond it? I think I mentioned that a little bit ago. You move beyond it by rejecting ideas that are just needlessly divisive. Mm-hmm. I hear you very much. Uh, my final question for you before we ask you to tell people about what you do and how to reach you. My final question is tell us about Colorist United, which is an organization created to speak out against those who want to divide America by giving a voice to millions who are upset by government, corporate and media claims that America is a hateful country. Uh, I know a lot of people in the organization. I've, I've looked, I've been on the website and there's a lot of people that people would know. So tell us about the organization and why people 
people should definitely check out your website and get involved. Well, we're a 501c3 nonprofit, and our group, our group mission is very simple. We want to stand up for the ideas of colorblindness in America. We want to defend the common man of America who is being preached to by these divisive philosophies of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and social justice that are within his workplace that are telling him he's guilty for his race are telling him he is some kind of bad person if he doesn't pay reparations, things like that. We are a counter-messaging organization that goes into institutions with a guerrilla warfare-style tactic to do our best to beat back these ideas. And so I'm the spokesperson, and I kind of help out with that, right? Article that go on media like this, and I try to preach our message to people. Um, now, pre- people can find me on several different places. But the most easiest place is going to be my Twitter, which is going to be at official C Watson. And then my website, christianjwatson.com. Both of those, um, both of those places, you can find me, you can get in contact with me. You can find my YouTube channel, which is also where I put out commentary almost every single day. And you can watch my content there. Now, Christian, what I need to know is how do you do all this stuff? Tell people the names of your shows and all the things you do, because you're all over the place. I don't even know how you find the time. You have you have two shows on YouTube. You have this over there. You got Colleges United here. You're going around speaking to college campuses. Where do you find the time? And make sure to let them know the names of your show so they know where to find you if they don't land on your website. Yep. You just go to Pence of Politics on YouTube and you just type in Christian Watson Politics on YouTube and you'll find all my stuff there. Also, highlight on the time. Well, I have busy seasons and I have off seasons. It's easier during my off seasons. During my busy seasons, I have to literally segment areas of time out to certain things, and I have to say, hold on to people I care about. I have to kind of cut off family time a little bit. I have to do a lot of things and make sacrifices. But anything worth having is worth making a sacrifice. And I certainly believe that if I succeed in this endeavor, not only will the nation and the world be better for it, but my own life and my family will be better for it as well. And that's really what keeps me going. Thank you. Christian, thanks for coming on. We're welcome to come back. We'll, you know, keep doing what you're doing and please don't let them grind you down. Thank you so much. There you have it, everybody. Mr. Christian Watson. I want to thank Christian Watson for speaking about a vision for America where character instead of race is the important driving factor. We've got to understand that factions intentionally seeking to divide us as Americans are doing so for deleterious reasons. We the people must take on this evil agenda head on and defeat it if we're to retain our freedom and our liberty. This podcast is available for download at RadioInfluence.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hope you'll subscribe to it, leave a rating and a review. And be sure to tell your friends about the show. For first-time listeners, we hope you'll check out the podcast archive located on the page. You'll hear previous guests, including Carrie Lake, Monica Crowley, Brandon Tatum, Kira Davis, Professor Nicholas Giordano, Diamond and Silk, Ian Pryor, Rebecca Friedrichs, Michael Loftus, Tracy Beans, Kevin McGarry, A.J. Rice, Naomi Wolf, Ben Carson, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. That's all for now, friends. Thanks for joining us. So until the next time, this is your host, Gary Benford, saying God bless you, God bless your families, and God bless America. America.